This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Today on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, an example of wide interagency collaboration designed to support children and youth in need, specifically regarding human trafficking. Hi everyone, I'm Tom Oates with Information Gateway. The federal government is placing a greater emphasis on recognizing, addressing, and reducing human trafficking. And child welfare is impacted because children and youth placed in foster care due to abuse or neglect, along with runaway or homeless youth, they're at high risk of being trafficked. Now, the Preventing Sex Trafficking and Strengthening Families Act, which was signed into law in September of 2014, has in part requirements for Title IV-E agencies that include developing policies and procedures to identify children and youth within the child welfare system who are either victims of or at risk for sex trafficking and to determine appropriate services for them. So today, we're going to talk with a few people who are putting this into action in South Florida. The Miami Cares Project was created through a grant from the Children's Bureau and brings together 12 different community organizations and government agencies. And this includes the Florida Department of Children and Families, Juvenile Justice, State's Attorney's Office, the Citrus Health Network, the Miami Coalition for the Homeless, and others, all in partnership to serve Miami-Dade County. They've built an infrastructure, developed and launched training programs, helped enforce existing legislation, all to create a coordinated child welfare system in response to trafficking of minors. Really pleased to have three key leaders uh, joining us with this one. Yene Ruiz works for Our Kids of Miami-Dade County, and she is the program manager for the Miami Cares Project. Dr. Kimberly McGrath is part of Citrus Health Network, and she is the clinical coordinator for the CHANCE program, which is part of the Miami Cares Project and provides therapeutic services for trafficking victims and has specific training for foster parents. And the Honorable Maria San Pedro Iglesias. She is an associate administrative judge within the 11th Judicial Court of Florida, and she presides over a specific court. It's called the Grace Court, and that's within the Juvenile Division and was created specifically for minors who are victims of human trafficking. We talk about how the Miami Cares Project works, how they achieve this cross-agency collaboration, and what goes into serving the children and youth of Miami-Dade County who are at risk for or victims of human trafficking. We're so glad you're joining us. It's a great example to replicate, not only for trafficking, but for cross-agency collaboration. So my first question here, and you know, if you want to jump in here, talk to me about what were the, really the impetus? What was the problems and issues that the CARES Project uh, tried to address? Okay, so... Back in 2012, House Bill 99 was passed here in the state of Florida, and this bill allows uh, minor victims of human trafficking to be deemed as dependent children in the court instead of delinquent children, and giving law enforcement the discretion to either arrest or deliver the children to a short-term safe house, if available. And what this did was, was allowing the child welfare professionals to provide services and address the needs of these children. 
at the time, our kids of Miami Dade and Monroe didn't have um, a unit that would address the, situ the, the services needed for these children. So we decided to apply for a five-year grant um, that would address human trafficking within the child welfare population here in Miami-Dade County. And that's how the Miami Cares Project was created to be able to help and address the needs of this population. So in looking at the grant, it's not just, you know, our kids. It's not just, uh, you know, the Citrix Health Network. You've got what more than 10 organizations and groups. Talk to me about why you chose these teams or why this group was able to come together and what their significance in working together provides the project. When the project was first created back in 2014, the first thing we did was we became members of all of the human trafficking task force that we had here in Miami-Dade County. And there were three major human trafficking task force. We started learning and getting to know all the key players in this task forces and who were the people that could really help um, the population that we served. And we started creating a relationship with these organizations. So we became really close with the Juvenile Justice Center, with different local police departments, with the state attorney's office, started working closely with the Guardian Alitum program. We already had, thankfully, two great providers that were uh, providing specialized services to these victims, one of which was the main provider, which is the CHANCE program. And you're going to hear um, a little bit about them later on. So that's how we started identifying this, um, these different organizations through the task forces that we have in, in our city. So in doing so, let's talk a little bit about the entire program, the project itself. So how are youth then identified? And, and then what happens when they are identified either as victims or at risk for being victims? So we convene multidisciplinary staffings to be able to discuss each specific cases for these children. And what we do is we try to identify who are the key players in these staffings, who are involved in the children's life. Um, in any staffings, we can have as many as 10 or more participants. We have foster parents that may be working with this child who may have important information as to the kid that can probably help us identify their high risk. The therapist from the CHANCE program, we have the guardian alitum, foster parents, um, I'm sorry I said that before, the case manager, anyone that really can provide key information. We discuss the needs of the children, the details of their activities, what, what are their behaviors. And by doing so, we learn so much about the children, are really able to identify whether another child is, a, is at high risk of being exploited. Most of the time when we identify high-risk children, later on within a few months, um, we are able to confirm their involvement. And in that, at that point, we always can involve the state attorney's office or any local police department that may, uh, may be of any help in the investigation for these children. It sounds like at this point, you're able to then, once you identify, you're able to alert the right groups to get action. Exactly. Exactly. So in the state of Florida, uh, pretty recently, as I think it was January of this year, was um, got a, a screening, a human trafficking screening tool that was approved to be utilized by all of the case managers and child protective investigators. 
So this tool is also now used by protective investigators and case managers when they feel also that a child may be at risk of being exploited. That's another way to identify the children that we're using. Once that tool is uh, completed, it's sent to the Miami CARES project so we can convene a multidisciplinary staffing and then discuss the findings of those tools. So once you start to work, all the other teams start to come into play. And you mentioned before, so I want to bring in Dr. McGrath about the CHANCE program. And so where does the CHANCE program play within this and what is it doing right now for, for these trafficking victims? Um, in 2012, when Safe Harbor was being initiated and passed, um, we were asked to develop uh, by the Department of Children and Families and our local community-based care agency, our kids, to develop a, a treatment program for these youth. So at the time, we developed um, specialized therapeutic foster care homes. Um, Citrus is a federally qualified health center, and we've been providing therapeutic foster care services for over 20 years. So we're very familiar with working with children who have extreme behavioral and emotional needs. Um, we have been working with these youth in our therapeutic programs for years, but we never had a coordinated system response to really be able to address their needs. So we initially started by developing um, specialized therapeutic foster care homes specifically designed to meet the needs of sexually exploited youth. Our foster parents received 24 additional hours of training on commercial sexual exploitation. The youth are the only child placed in the home. Um, and then we bring in all the clinical wraparound services and we very tightly therapeutically wrap the child in the home with services. Um, we currently have 15 homes operational in Miami-Dade County. Um, we quickly realized that we had many more children than we were going to be able to bring up foster homes. So those same clinical services that wrap the child, we put them in a community response team and we'll go out and meet the child and wrap them in whatever placement that they currently live in. It could be a shelter home. It could be home with relatives, um, group homes, wherever it might be. The therapeutic services that we typically provide the youth are individual therapy, family therapy, um, we have a life coach who is a survivor of human trafficking to provide life coaching and mentoring. Group therapy, they're in a 16-week manualized uh, psychoeducational process group specific for commercial sexual exploitation. And then also any other services that they might need, psychiatric, medical, we link them within our, within our agency to all those services. So let me pull on that for a little bit. And especially when you talk about the training that you're able to give, the extra hours of training, for foster parents to specifically deal with these victims. What goes into that training? And, and then on the flip side, how are you able to recruit families to, to deal with this special population? Um, our training uh, has been approved by the state of Florida. Um, it's and our curriculum consists of what we call HT 101, um, which includes um, precursors and triggers and signs to look for for youth that could potentially be involved in human trafficking. Um, all of the recruitment techniques that traffickers are using to employ youth. Um, the mental, psychological, and physical effects of trauma on youth and the role that that plays in human trafficking. Um, in addition to that, the second part of the training really focuses on helping our foster parents develop techniques to handle the behavioral and emotional needs that the children display because they have such extensive histories of trauma. 
Um, the University of South Florida has been our research partner since we started this program. Uh, and one of the findings that has really struck us is the amount of trauma that these youth experience prior to their exploitation. So our foster parents are dealing with um, not only the immediate effects of the sexual exploitation, but also years of trauma. And they really need to have the training and, and be able to be equipped to deal with, with that response. Um, with regard to recruitment, um, it has been challenging uh, to recruit foster parents for this population. But I think that when we really focus on the victimization of youth who are commercially sexually exploited, we bring down the stigma associated with these youth and we get people to understand that they are vulnerable children who have been exploited, um, that they are not criminals, that they are victims. And then we have folks more willing to work with them to get the training that they need to be able to appropriately care for them. Wow, and so we're seeing the services that are then provided in this. And you mentioned it's not necessarily come to the services, but bring the services to wherever the child is, be it in a group home, be it in a foster home or wherever they are. Uh, and so then again, part of the entire project, there is this whole component that's involving the state attorney's office and, and the judicial system. So that brings in, of course, the Grace Court, which is a big part of this as well in terms of the how legislation is put through this. So uh, Judge San Pedro Iglesia, talk to me a little bit about why the Grace Court came to be and what occurs there that makes it different from other juvenile courts. The Grace Court came to be because for a while we were servicing the human trafficking victims. For approximately three to four years, I was handling those cases. However, in the last few months, it's when it's been formalized. We wanted, first of all, to give it a name that did not have the stigma of human trafficking court. So we came up with Grace Court, which stands for Growth Renewed Through Acceptance, Change, and Empowerment, um, to try and give the victims a positive twist to what they were going through. It's different than any other court in the nation, as far as we know, because it's not to say that other courts in the nation do not handle human trafficking victims. Of course, they do. However, we are under the belief that this is the only court that encompasses everything of a minor that is a victim of human trafficking. So if she has or he has a delinquency, it will come here. If the child has a dependency, it will come here. If the, there's a family law case, a divorce, and the child has a component in the case, it will come here. So it's the first court that we know of that really takes care of all of the facets of the family, so long as the child is obviously a human trafficking victim. You know, you, know, you mentioned something about the name of the Grace Court to try to take away the stigma of human trafficking. And so we see the services, we see the agencies, you, you, we see the courts. But when you talk about that stigma, there's a stigma from the outside. But then how are you guys, all, all three of you, how are you dealing with the stigma of the victim and trying to engage them into accepting the services and, and being willing to understand that the court is actually working for them, not as much as try to punish them? Well, I think Dr. McGrath is probably the one that deals with that the most. But from my standpoint, at least, when the children come into court, they have a whole team here. They have usually their therapist comes with them. I um, 
do my very best to appoint an attorney at litem that represents the child. So the child feels somewhat valued, feels that her voice or his voice is being heard because that attorney is representing the child. Um, Yane is usually here from our kids to lend support to the child. And it's a less adversarial proceeding than most of the cases. Sometimes it obviously gets adversarial, but I think the child um, feels more valued. We all make a really big deal when anything goes their way. If they came up from an F in school to a C, it's like a really big deal. Um, I try to talk to them one-on-one. And Dr. McGrath, I think, can answer the rest of it because of the therapy that the children receive. It is very hard to engage them and to get them to feel that they are victims. They do not feel that they are victims. And that's probably the biggest challenge that we have. Right. I think the judge answered the question um, wonderfully. I think the with our therapist, the biggest piece for engagement has been continuity, um, that they're consistent, that they continue to show up even when they're asked maybe not to appear. Um, they continue to be present and to offer services to the child, whatever the child wants to work on. It does not have to be related to their trauma or their sexual exploitation. It could be that our therapists are helping youth identify um, employability skills or looking for jobs, whatever it takes to form that connection with the youth. Um, additionally, also showing up when the children are in times of crisis, making sure that if they're sick and in the emergency room, or if unfortunately they end up in uh, a detention facility, that our therapists are there and continue to provide support. Uh, that continuity, I think, is one of the key components of the program. So if a youth is in um, within our in the chance program and they move, regardless of where they move, that individual therapist continues and remains their individual therapist. So whether they move from biological family into a specialized therapeutic foster home, then maybe into a shelter placement, that therapist continues to follow that child, trying to build that engagement, trying to build that trust so that they can then address the trauma. And I know something like that is really on an individual basis, but are you seeing, you know, are your therapists, you know, coming back and saying, listen, I, you know, we're getting breakthroughs, we're getting connection, we're starting to see that trust. Are you seeing that based on that kind of, uh, and I don't, you know, almost I'm going to be dedicated with you no matter where you are, no matter what you go through, kind of feeling that the therapists, I, I guess, are trying to get across uh, to, to, to the, you know, the, the young men and women out there. Yeah, and we're seeing, and anecdotally, I can tell you stories that demonstrate that our, our kids are being bond, are becoming bonded. The rapport with the therapist has been established. But I think even for the therapist, the data that we're receiving from the University of South Florida has been really reinforcing because it has shown us that we've seen across the board significant improvements in the youth in their um, runaway episodes, that we're seeing a ch uh, academic achievement is improving, um, that their trauma symptoms are reducing. Uh, so we're seeing a significant reduction in trauma symptoms. So that research is also helping us to kind of redefine and reevaluate success with this population, which is so important. Um, our youth are still running. There are many of them that still do unfortunately run away, but we're finding that they're coming back more frequently and that they're staying longer uh, and that they're more willing to process their experiences and they're gaining insight into what's happening in their lives when they're in these high risk situations. So and let me add a little bit more to that because we're about you know two years into the grant. So what are kind of the results and the impacts that you're seeing? you know, both from the impacts that you're seeing in, 
in, uh, in being able to connect with and and reach uh, these these victims or those who are uh, at risk or like you mentioned you've got 15 families uh, that have been trained in you know our resource families what are kind of the results and impacts that you're seeing after about you know two years of implementing uh, and standing up the cares project well we're seeing a lot of um community collaboration that's what we're seeing we're seeing that the agencies are more willing to work together on helping these children. We're seeing an increasing awareness on human trafficking, especially with the case management, with the child protective investigators. We're getting more referrals of children that they may have concerns um, that may be trafficked. Whereas before there was that resistance of not wanting to even talk about the possibility that a child in their caseload was a victim of human trafficking because they just didn't want to label the child. And that's what we used to hear a lot. And now we're just getting more of, can we provide services to this child to ensure that they're not, they don't get trafficked. They, they believe more in the preventive services. And, and so we, we are seeing um, a big improvement when it comes to awareness and, and people wanting to work together. Let me ask you this, as we see the results, we've seen the impacts and, and how the program comes to be. Let me ask you at the beginning of how this program got started, because the collaboration between so many agencies is, is intriguing. So first off, how did you, once the grant came in or even beforehand when you're applying for it, how did you achieve buy-in from so many different agencies uh, you know, across Miami-Dade County? It was hard, I got to tell you, because at the beginning, you you know, we didn't get that collaboration. We got a lot of resistance. And I think it, um, the key point was to acknowledge everybody's role in the fight of human trafficking and ensuring that they knew that their role was very important, but it was different. Every single organization has a complete different role. Making them understand that if we bring everybody together with the different roles that they have in this fight, we can probably make something happen. And it took a while for that um, to to take place, but you know, we tried and we continue to try. And I think we gain everybody's trust, and that really made a difference. So yeah, collaboration and that can't be written down on a piece of paper and then mandated and magically it happens. How do you manage all the day to day communication and the collaboration between all these agencies? So so everyone still feels like that they have skin in the game and they do have input. Like I said before, they're included in, in the multidisciplinary staffings. We do reach out a lot to, to the different organizations that we work with, asking for help and, and, and involve them in the, in the cases and ask them to participate, especially in the direct contact with the victims. So um, it's, it takes a lot of work and it's a daily struggle and we do it on a daily basis. We are constantly on the phone. We have with the chance program, eight o'clock in the morning, I'm already on the phone with with their therapist and, and, and their administrators. Same thing with the state attorney's office. We're in constant communication, sometimes even during the weekends or 11 o'clock at night. It really never stops. And a tireless effort. Thank you guys so much uh, for that. And in putting all this together, you're talking about the barriers and, and how you have to almost change some minds your Honor, let me ask you, how were you able to get buy-in and, and establish this 
really the grace court within, you know, the, the court system, the juvenile court system itself, the state's attorney's office, and you're getting, you know, defense counsel and you're getting everyone to work together. Tell me about getting that buy-in on that end. I think it's the only type of case that everybody has the same goal in mind and everybody wants to have their part in saving the child. Everybody has a different role. It gets a little bit more complicated than what Yane was speaking about because uh, lawyers by nature love to argue. And um, mm-hmm. that sometimes is a very big challenge in court, but everybody is very open. Everybody has a lot of communication. The care program invites them all to the multidisciplinary staffings. I am not included in those, obviously, because they talk about things about the case that I do not know yet or want to know yet. But by the time they come to court, um, we're all more or less on the same page. It was difficult at first because many attorneys, judges, what have you, want to transfer any child that runs away often as a human trafficking victim. And there's a lot more to identifying them as a human trafficking victim. It's taken a lot of work from our administrators. It's taken a lot of work from everybody. But we've had really the support of everybody. We've had a lot of training on it and everybody is on board. Wow. And think that after two years that you guys have seen some of the some, some of the results that you talked about earlier and in, in, in the de- de- in the improvement really in, on the outcomes and positive outcomes. You know, if you were to start all over, what would you do differently? What is it that you know now that you wish you knew back then? Well, when it comes to human trafficking, we're always learning. Um, I think that the education part um was a key component in, and it was much needed in, in our community. I think that um, if I was to do something different, I would probably have started all this much sooner than what we did. I think it took way too long to start, mm-hmm. um, to bring everyone together. Um, so I really regret that we didn't do this sooner and that um, we didn't start working on this fight of human trafficking way before than what we did. She's probably right because um, many of the victims are as young as 12, 13. Some of them come in when they're 17. So it makes you wonder how long they were out there that no one was there to help them. A lot of what we're seeing as, as human trafficking is, is becoming such a receiving such a much larger focus uh, within the federal government. And, and as it goes down to local and state agencies, the recognition of it and and the training and reactions uh, really are varied across across the nation. Dr. McGrath, let me ask you, what would be your best training advice across the board for folks to be able to recognize and, and address human trafficking within child welfare and really across the board, law enforcement, juvenile justice, court personnel and child welfare? What's the best training advice when it comes to human trafficking? I think the best advice is train as many people as humanly possible across settings. Um, We need to be training our emergency room doctors to look for the physical signs and symptoms of trafficking. We need to get into the school system. We have to get our school boards and our Department of Education on board and allow us to get into the schools to start talking to our youth about human trafficking and prevention. 
We need to work with our hospitality staff, helping them identify victims of human trafficking and how do you respond and who do you call. So really the bottom line is as many people as possible. The more we train, the more youth that will identify. And Dr. McGrath, where do you, where does, where does, uh, where does the, uh, the chance project or the chance program, where do you go to find the latest information and the latest training information uh, regarding human trafficking? Uh, we're, we're constantly reading and learning. Um, we look to Shared Hope for guidance, the Polaris Project, um, a lot of the national human trafficking programs. Um, USF as our research partner, they're constantly looking to see has any new uh, research empirical evidence been um, published and sharing that information with us. There's a number of uh, blogs the um, and lit serves. The Heal Foundation, for example, is one. Uh, that we belong to so that we're making sure if, if anything has been added to the research base, we want to know about it uh, so that we're well educated to take care of our youth. Mm. Guys, this has been just a great example of what can be done. One, when it comes to addressing and, and really preventing human trafficking, but then also it's a great example of, of a massive cross-agency collaboration. And so finally, you know, let me wrap this up by thinking, you know, if you've got to tell somebody across the, the country who wants to establish a similar cross-collaborative project, what, what's the biggest key in kind of getting everybody together? I think understanding what is it that their community has in place already. What is it that they're offering? Reach out to those uh, providers, bring them to the table, give them a voice, um, discuss the cases with them. You'll be surprised the things that you're gonna learn from, from everyone in the community, from the different organizations. Um, I think that's just getting to know your community and, and, and all of the different organizations that are really passionate about helping victims of human trafficking. If I could add something too, I think that the state has to buy into the concept as well, starting with your leadership. So like the secretary of the Department of Children and Families in Florida, the um, the attorney general, our state attorney, they are very committed to combating human trafficking. They've created positions like within the Department of Children and Families. They now have a human trafficking director. Department of Juvenile Justice now has a human trafficking director. So from your leadership down, we've been able to, and they have to have a commitment or a project like this isn't gonna work because it does take resources. Um, and people have to be dedicated to this project or it's not gonna be successful. Dr. McGrath, Yanai Ruiz, Your Honor, Judge Maria San Pedro Iglesia, I wanna thank you guys so much, not only for taking the time to, to spend your energy to communicate this with Child Welfare Information Gateway and, and all the folks listening, but also thank you guys for the work that you're doing down there in, in Dade County and all the work you've put through the years and, and tireless nights to get you to where you are today and, and where we can hopefully go in the future. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank for you. The now, if you head to childwelfare.gov and search podcasts, within the page for this episode, you'll find links to our section containing resources and information specific to human trafficking, which includes resources from the Polaris Project, which Dr. McGrath mentioned at the end of the interview. We also have a link to the Information Gateway publication, 
child welfare and human trafficking. Now, this provides an overview of the crossover between child welfare and the work across the country to prevent and respond to trafficking. There are sections in that brief that address the federal legislation and initiatives on trafficking and child welfare. There's information on victims and their needs and examples of state and local efforts to help victims. We'll also have a link to our list of sex trafficking prevention and intervention organizations, which provide information, resources, and training. Now, this list includes groups like Shared Hope, which Dr. McGrath also mentioned. We'll also point you to the homepage of the new Office on Trafficking in Persons, which was recently established by the Administration for Children and Families. There, you can find guidance on the legislation, along with resources to help your work and services for trafficking victims. As always, do not hesitate to contact Child Welfare Information Gateway for questions about information and tools that you're looking for to help your work in serving children, youth, and families. Now, whether it's training resources, data, current state statutes, or contact information for other agencies and organizations across the country. It's our job at Information Gateway to connect you to relevant and worthy information from across the continuum of child welfare. Now, you can email us at info at childwelfare.gov or head to our website, childwelfare.gov, and just start a live chat. With that, I'd like to thank Yane Ruiz, Dr. Kimberly McGrath, and Judge Maria San Pedro Iglesio for their time, their energy, and their insight. Hopefully you found something worthwhile uh, from the conversation. And if you have topics of interest that you'd like to hear about, hey, let us know. We're trying to pull out the great examples and lessons learned from agencies and organizations across the country and share it with you through the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.